stage left. This is it, fellas. This is our very first episode of this series that we will call Cageless. If you've listened before, you already know about our regular series that we do at Late Night Cage Fight. We're currently working through all of Nicolas Cage's filmography. And um, for that regular podcast, actually, we're nearing the end of the season where uh, we will pick um, the best film of the season. Last season's winner was Birdie. And uh, we're looking forward to, I think, a pretty interesting, I don't know if it'll be heated per se, but I think it's going to be a good battle. But actually, this new series we're doing tonight, Cageless, literally has nothing to do with Nicolas Cage. And you're probably asking why. It's for our own sanity. It's because we as movie fans, it's just fun for us sometimes to explore other movies and filmmakers outside of the Cageverse and to just uh, like share our appreciation. So instead of reviewing movies like you're used to in our normal podcast, with Cageless, we're going to take a deeper dive into movies that we already know we like and we think might inspire some meaningful conversation between us. But do check out our regular podcast and always stay up to speed by visiting our website, nickcagefight.com. Uh, follow us on Facebook. And yeah, let's get this started. We're going to be looking at both films by Ari Aster. And Hereditary is his first release, his debut horror film. This movie just came out of nowhere. 2018, I had no clue who Ari Aster was. Nobody did before this movie. And so going into it, I just approached it as I would any other horror movie. Well, first, let me introduce also Matt and Sean. You guys are with me for this ride. Good day. Hello. You both have seen both of Ari Aster's movies, Hereditary and Midsummer, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've actually seen both of them several times. Yeah, you said, yeah, you said that, and I think that's pretty cool. You've probably seen Hereditary more times than I have. I've watched it maybe three times in full, and I've only watched Midsummer once. But that was enough for me to feel inspired to want to talk about these movies. Um, recently, Oscar-winning writer-director of the movie Parasite, if you remember that one from a while back, mm-hmm. uh, the guy's mm-hmm. name, he's a South Korean director named Bong Joon-ho. He calls Aster one of 20 directors that are essential to the future of cinema. And he's, I... he's even written the foreword to a new 240-page hereditary book that's for sale right now on A24's website, A24films.com. I just saw it this morning, and I thought, wow, I really need to, to order this. I think the bulk of it is the script. There may be some added extras, but it's a coffee table size um, hardcover book, and it looks it looks pretty cool. So check that out. Um, but also be aware that the screenplay for Hereditary is online to read for free, which I did in preparation for this. All right. Ari Aster. So who is this guy? Right now, he is a 34-year-old dude who just, from what I understand, he was just a guy who knew he wanted to make movies for a long time, ever since he was a kid. And uh, he did it just, he did it the right way. He went to school, studied film, 
and started making movies. It's actually pretty crazy how it all worked out. Um, he was a graduate of the prestigious American Film Institute in L.A., a pretty tough film school to get into. And that's where he kind of, uh, well, he did. He made all of these connections that he would later use to produce these movies. Uh, I believe his director of photography he met in film school. In, in learning more about him, I just uh, realized that I, I really admired this guy because um, he's, not, he's not a branded personality like we're used to seeing in the horror movie world. You know what I mean? He's not mm-hmm. like uh, he's not like one of those rock star type personalities who just come out of nowhere and make this movie that's meant to blow your mind. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just he just likes movies. He produced this really killer short that I want to see in film school. It's called The Strange Thing About the Johnsons. I don't think any of us has seen that one. No, I've I've been wanting to check that out. I wasn't sure where it was available, but. Yeah, I would. I didn't realize that he did that in film school. Yeah, I believe so. Apparently, it's a movie about a son molesting his father. Really? <laughs> That's what I've read. Yeah, it's supposed to be unique. The other thing I like about him is I feel like he's honest in his movies to himself while also expressing themes that are common to everyone within the horror genre. Which is cool. I feel like we don't see a lot of that style of filmmaking. And it's, it's not just about being shocking or making the scariest movie ever or something like that. He's, he's really trying to make movies that last and inflict a special kind of trauma on the viewer. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually super grateful for how little I knew about Hereditary or Ari Aster or anything when I first saw it. And I think because of that, it's had such a profound effect on me. And it, it just proved to me that, um, just proved to me the power of movies and the effect they can have, even on an adult mind. I would argue, actually, that uh, for Hereditary um, in particular, I would say that this is a movie that you should go into 100% blind. I think that the less you know about this movie, the better. And, uh, you know, uh, the main, the main reason why I went to go check this movie out, cause I actually saw this in theaters back when it was released. Um, and th- and this was back when, uh, when movie pass was a thing. Uh, so I was, I was going to see, you know, pretty much any movie that, looked somewhat interesting because it was like 10 bucks a month for you know as many movies as i could watch and you know i i saw the trailer for hereditary and you know uh, they really don't tell you that much about what the movie is about but you know they they kind of just do enough to draw you in like give you a general idea of the vibe of the movie and uh you know and and they use the uh the clicking noise that uh charlie uses throughout uh you know throughout the trailer as kind of like an unsettling visual cue come on peter 
Yes, you're suing. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel her in the room. She isn't gone. She had private rituals, private friends. Who's gonna take care of me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die. And she wasn't altogether there. At the end. stress on my family. Yeah, uh, you know, I was I was familiar with A24. I had seen uh, you know, quite a few of their films and I, you know, everything that they put out, I was always impressed with. Uh Yeah, actually, uh A24, they they did another film that uh i kind of went into blind actually it was another movie that i just happened to be on vacation and uh happened to catch a showing it was this movie killing of a sacred deer uh very strange film <laughs> yeah I, i won't go too much into it but it, it's a very cerebral experimental like almost art house film uh it's actually on netflix okay yeah i need to check that one out i don't know why when i saw that title somewhere i had thought that it was an older movie no it's uh i think it was 2016 or something that director also has another movie which i haven't seen on netflix called the lobster which uh yeah i've seen the art also yeah that sounded interesting but Yeah, so I mean, you know, uh, A24, I was always very impressed with the films that they put out. Uh, yeah, and that's what really caused me to see this movie. I mean, I, I'm not sure how, uh, if, if you echo the same sentiment, but I, throughout the, the early 2000s, I really felt that the horror genre really had kind of fell off a cliff. Like, I... I was really personally I was really into, you know, the more cheesy like 80s and 90s horror movies like uh you know like the Hellraiser series, like Evil Dead, you know, and uh 
I feel like throughout the 2000s, the horror genre with, you know, besides a few standout movies, uh, really kind of started go going towards the direction of just like jump scares and just almost became kind of not that it wasn't trashy before but it was like trashy in a fun way this was just like oh we're we're gonna try to attract like young young adults and teenagers that want to see just a brain dead movie and you know not saying I don't love a brain dead horror movie, but you know, the horror genre really had a grit and a personality that really was lost in the early 2000s. And I feel like Hereditary, honestly, it was like, at least to me, uh, it, it almost was like a return to form of just like, it, it was the first horror movie I had seen in a very long time that, you know, it didn't go for cheap scares. It wasn't afraid to take its time and develop things. And, you know, it. I feel that it produced some very shocking horror. I feel like, well, you know, it's because it is a very slow burn movie. You know, it... Yes, it is a slow burn movie, but I think... Even towards the the early stages of the movie, you get some deeply unsettling images and sequences. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, very good points. Matt, how did you come across the movie? Um, I had um, seen the movie The Witch. You familiar with it? Yeah. And... Um, <clears throat> For some reason, uh, I mistakenly thought that Hereditary was uh, Robert Eggers' new film. And I was like, oh, dude, sick. I love The Witch. I'll check out this new movie by the same guy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I watched it by myself in my room one night. And it was, um, it kind of took me back in a, in a really, really weird way. Um, it kind of took me back to when I was like 12 or 13 and I was just like sneaking the sci-fi channel and like watching movies like The Thing and Aliens and shit, you know, like. But it was taboo for not you at that time. Right, yeah. At that time, I was like, I was like being pretty bad, you know, which is pretty cool. But yeah, man, this movie had um, it it uh, it sticks with you, you know. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's great that that you say that because Ari Aster in the special features of Hereditary. He, he basically said he wanted to make a movie that stays with you. And he wanted to make a movie that haunts people. And I think that, uh, I think he hit the nail on the head. Yeah, I say he nailed it. Good job, bud. It's kind of interesting he says that, because that's, that's almost, you know, the premise of the film is just, you know, that they're being 
not haunted, but, you know, there's just this malevolent force from one of their recently deceased family members. Yeah, so I guess uh, Ari Aster is like the uh, crazy wizard grandpa who's trying to make us (laughs) scared all the time. (laughs) So, all right, when I first watched Hereditary, it was 2018 when it came out. I had recently moved back to the States. So I'm just giving you a list of things that I think will show you that I was pretty vulnerable to this movie at the time. There had been a big change. Thanks, Matt. You're welcome. I had just moved back. I was uh, in between jobs. I had a, I was happy with my job abroad. And then we came back and I was unhappy going through the process of trying to find a new one. And so I decided instead of um, submitting resumes and waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks, I would just try to work kind of low-key, part-time if I had to, at a store in the local area. And there was this interesting metaphysical store in Northern Virginia. And I had some interests then in Eastern philosophy and spirituality. And, you know, if you know me, you know I'm into strange things. So naturally, I was attracted to the store and the possibility of working there. And uh, that's just, it's just unique that I'm working at this metaphysical store when this movie comes out that is about uh, alternative religions. Um, it's about cults. A, a lot of, uh, you know, things dealing in the supernatural metaphysical world. And then I, I heard about the movie, I believe, from a YouTube channel that does reviews. I actually think it was Mike and Jay's. Red Letter Media, but I, they're, my, they're one of my favorites, but I can't say for sure. But, you know, whenever they recommend a movie, I can tell probably within the first five minutes whether they like it or not. They try to reserve their opinions till after they describe it. But they started talking about Hereditary, and I, I knew immediately I had to just stop the review and watch the movie. I was like, I don't want to know anything else. So I never even saw the trailer or anything. I just saw, like, a quick... Hey, this movie's great. We're going to tell you why. Okay, time to turn it off and watch this movie. And I watched it by myself in my basement at night. <laughs> Tight. Yeah. And uh, I could not, I couldn't get it out of my head. I even called my grandmother and described to her the plot in this movie. <laughs> Meme, you, you did this with Mimo? I did, yeah. I said, I said. <laughs> Don't watch this movie. Don't ever watch this movie. But you are not going to believe what it's about. And she enjoyed she enjoyed my description. You know, I went through the movie and she liked it a lot and uh God bless me, mom. I mean I don't know how many people you can do that with in your in your family, but uh she's a saint. <laughs> Yeah, so that was my experience, watching Hereditary, and then immediately after, I, I was disturbed, and um, but I also wanted to watch it again. I don't know if you can relate to that feeling, where you it was just kind of unsettling and not positive, but at the same time, you want to do it again. I don't know. It's like a, a roller coaster, maybe? Sure. Yeah, definitely. 
No, I, I can, I can totally uh, relate to that. I mean, a lot of the times I'll, I'll see something and it'll be disturbing to me. But you know, it, it's one of those things where it's just like you're almost intrigued by it and you want to, you know, research it more and learn more about it. And yeah, it just makes you so curious about the people who made it as well, mm-hmm. which was a, a real treat for me then to watch the special features for the first time. I'll talk more about that later. But now, why don't we talk more about the movie itself and some of the themes that, that it deals with? Uh, this is a movie about family turmoil. I'd say primarily it's a movie about the collapse of a family. Um, it's about professional and personal despair it's about loss and grief how you deal with the death of someone close to you um a rising sense of paranoia it's about inheritance specifically of a curse fate artifice the art of manipulating people so much of this movie happens really behind the scenes i would say the, so much action that you're not aware of that is directly affecting the main plot. And what's so impressive is how well-developed that off-screen action really was when you kind of uh, dig into it. Do you guys have anything else to add to the, to the themes before we kind of talk about what specifically happens in the movie? I'd say that, you know, one of the main the main things that you find out is is just there's a kind of an overarching theme of just finding out who your the people close to you who they truly are especially after they you know have passed on you know you may learn things about them that you didn't know or that they didn't tell you when when they were alive my mother was a very secretive and private woman she had private rituals, private friends, private anxieties. Right. Yeah, that's really the beginning of this movie. This, this movie is also just uh, about basic roles in a family. Like the, ex- the expectations of uh, a mother, the expectations of a father, etc. You know, it's like, it's kind of a stereotypical family. Like, even from just a classic cinema point of view there's the stereotypical dad and mom and like bratty kid you know like that's the setup but then as the movie mm-hmm. progresses it, it kind of uh, turns that on its on its head so to exactly speak. yeah yes totally I agree that's where the horror comes in so many people like to talk about how well this movie um, challenges expectations which again is why really before we get into spoilers if you haven't watched hereditary please go do it before listening to the rest of our discussion but yeah there are a lot of revelations and i don't i don't like to call them twists they're not really twists they're just changes and and uh, yeah revelations so to speak that that change yeah. that change the flow of the story and change your idea of these characters and what you thought they were or how you felt about them. You know, Matt, you're talking about traditional family roles and how the mother 
takes care of the children, and she's supposed yes. to love her children and care for them. Yeah. And, uh, well, in this movie, she loses one of her children, and she grieves over that loss. But there's also some indication that maybe she wanted this to happen. Let's talk about the plot. Annie Graham is the lead character, played by Tony Collette, a tremendous actress. I had forgotten that she was in The Sixth Sense. So, oh. Yeah, she was supporting actress in The Sixth Sense. I completely forgot. She's done quite a few horror films, and actually, I don't remember what the one she did before Hereditary but she had told her agent that that was the last one. She wasn't going to do horror for a while. She was sick of it. But then somehow this script landed on her desk and she read it. And she immediately ran to her agent and said, I want to do this one. So I think that's pretty cool when you consider that Ari Aster is coming out of film school, writes the screenplay. And th- that was the actress I, I, you know, he says he wanted, first and foremost. And she loved it so much that she said yes. That's got to be great. A great feeling. She was in uh, Krampus in 2015. Yeah, I watched that too. (laughs) And then she was in Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage in 2017. Oh, man. That's got to be... Vin Dessel. The role of a lifetime. The movie, the movie takes place in Utah. She is a miniatures artist. She uh, creates these highly detailed miniatures, and the movie opens up with these miniatures and gives you this real cloying feeling because you actually see the actors, you see the characters inside the dollhouse, but then the dollhouse becomes the movie or the story, the setting of the world, you know? <laughs> And, you know, when you talk about the visuals in this movie, I, I also feel like there are certain there are certain scenes where um, props look bigger. They look like they're not proportional to reality the way they should be. Mm. I don't know if you guys noticed any of that, but there were just certain things. I, I realized they had this huge oversized lamp by the bedside, the master bedroom. Um but yeah, we won't get too much into the the production part of the movie. But what is interesting is they tried to find uh, the perfect house in Utah to shoot this. And they couldn't do it with, with all of, I think, the shots that Ari wanted to accomplish. And so they built the entire house from scratch in a studio. And it's pretty <laughs> damn cool to see. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Must have a big studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, the, the movie opens up with the obituary of uh, Annie's mother. So this is the grandmother in the film. She's passed away. It's kind of... Well, then there's the funeral, and Annie gives a speech about her mom. And that speech is kind of strange. She hints that there were some issues between her and her mom. Um, but it doesn't seem like there was a really hatred there, there used to be some conflict between them, but I don't know. Maybe there was hatred. Probably there was, actually. You can tell it's very deep-seated, and, uh, you know, they, they had a very rocky and complicated relationship. Very fraught. 
And so her husband then, Steve, um, he is a psychiatrist. And you find out in the movie that the two of them met because at one time Annie was Steve's patient, which is an interesting little fact. And they have two kids. They have Peter, the oldest. Uh, how old is Peter? 16? Yeah, he's like 16 or 17. And then Charlie, who is 13. And Charlie, of course, immediately sticks out to you because of um, just the look of her. Um, yeah, I mean, th- there were some makeup effects done to really add that kind of a bizarre touch I think to her her face and she's got very strange expressions and uh, yeah I mean it's it's obvious she's dealing with some kind of disability right and yeah she likes to sit around and draw and make art create little uh, figurines and stuff and then Peter is kind of he's just kind of like your average high school kid he just doesn't give a shit you know He, he likes to get with his friends and he'd rather smoke some weed than and uh, pay attention in class and he's checking out girls and he just seems like a kid I guess a teen kid yeah he doesn't seem necessarily like a you know like a bad person or anything he uh, you know you can you can tell like while he's somewhat annoyed by his having to take care of his sister sometime uh, you know that he does actually care about her right Peter tells his parents, he tells his mom that he's going to go to a party. His mom demands that he take Charlie with him. Of course, he doesn't want to. I mean, who? why, why would you want to bring your little sister to a party, you know, in high school? That's lame. But he does it. And it's made known that she has a nut allergy that really sticks out to you in one of the early scenes. But uh, at this party, while Peter's in the back... You know, trying to hook up with some girl and smoking a bong. His um, sister is being fed cake with nuts in it. Yeah, we all know what happens next, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It ain't good. So he he has the car, and uh, he's worried about his sister, so he speeds off and says it's going to be okay. He's going to take her to the hospital, and she can't breathe. So... She sticks her head out the window to get a breath of fresh air, but instead of fresh air, she gets a telephone pole to the head and is decapitated. I don't know if you've ever tried to breathe a telephone pole, but, uh... Especially at, you know, 70 miles an hour. So that that's a pretty shocking scene. <laughs> what follows yeah, is... stick with you. So, Peter is in shock. And uh, it's one of the most harrowing scenes I've seen in a movie in a long time. Or just a a sequence where Peter refuses to look at the remains to to come to terms with what he's done. So instead, he goes into shock and denial mode completely, drives home, and goes to bed and sleeps the rest of the night. And then we get this tremendously powerful scene where the camera is on his face in the morning. You can tell he hasn't slept a wink. He's laying there with his eyes open and we hear his mom getting ready to leave. 
talking to her husband and all that. But we know what's about to happen. And even though we know what's going to happen, it is just so difficult to experience when she sees her daughter's body in the car, which again, we don't directly see. This is all what we hear in the background while the camera is on Peter's face. It is just, wow. And then uh, smash cut to uh, ants having a little little snack. Oh yeah, and and then that's, yeah. And that's when I felt like, okay, this is a horror movie because we're seeing yeah. the gore, you know? You see yeah. her decapitated yeah. head in the road. Uh, she's missing her nose, right? Isn't oh, you're right. Yeah, I well, so. well, there's some interesting parallels that we got to keep in mind here because later in the movie, Peter has a broken nose. Mm-hmm. And Charlie's decapitated head is missing a nose, and I think that there's something there. There's something to that. I mean, the rest of this movie then is just a spiral into absolute chaos. You think, is this a ghost movie? Is what what is this exactly? Oh jeez. Oh that's right. We we uh I failed to mention the reason that she uh that Charlie hit her head on that telephone pole, which is important, is because there was a deer, like a dead or dying deer in the middle of the road, and Peter swerved the car to miss it. So that's an important yes. thing. It wasn't just that he was driving, you know, too close to the side of the road or something. This He was trying to miss something. Um, Obviously, there's a funeral. The mom is mourning the death of Charlie. And then there's this whole new dynamic between the family, of course. Um, There's there's a powerful dinner scene where Peter asks his mom to just come out and say it. Basically, just say, what the fuck you feel? You blame me for this and... She says, I don't blame you, but if you hadn't gone to that party or if you'd watched your sister, she'd still be alive. And But then the, the movie takes this turn into the supernatural where Annie starts to go to a, um, not a rehab group, but like a... It's like a support group. Exactly. She starts to go to a support group where she can meet with other people who have experienced loss and this kind of trauma. And that's where she meets... This uh, this character named Joan. And I just got to tell you, the lady who was cast to play Joan, I think, was an excellent choice. Yeah, she's dope. I'm trying to think if I've seen her in anything else. She was in The Leftovers on HBO. Um, she was I've heard really good ha- things. Handmaid's Tale as well. Oh, was she? See, I'd never seen her in anything else. But just from... I'm, I don't know, man. Just like... I totally knew people mm-hmm. in the Christian community who were very much like this. Just they want to help you so badly and they want to make you feel loved and cared for. But uh, I mean, I only say Christian because that's the area that I come from. I'm not I'm not attacking anyone here. I'm just I'm saying it reminded me of people that I met <laughs> that uh, they seemed super sincere, but there was something about them as well. It was off-putting, mm-hmm. and yeah. she she did that so well. Her her gesturing. Um, Ari Oster said in the special features how he was impressed by her use of touching Annie all the mm-hmm. time to reinforce that comfort 
And I never, I didn't think about it. But yeah, great performance. She connects with Annie. They kind of, I won't, I wouldn't say they become friends, but they become friendly with one another to the, to the level where uh, Annie is comfortable going to Joan's apartment. And then things get a little weird when um, there's some other events that lead up to this, but since we're still talking about the Joan character, well, I have to mention that she tells Annie before that uh, her son and grandson, I think, passed away at the same time in a drowning accident. So that's their connection specifically. And later she tells Annie she spoke with her son. And we are, we're treated to a kind of well, what it is, is it's a, it's, it's a channeling ritual. She's channeling the spirit of her son and uh, communicating with him. And the way that it's done struck me specifically because I worked at a metaphysical store and I'm, I'm around, uh, when I watched this, you know, I was around people who were into mediums and were into the... Uh, it just seemed like people who are into this stuff, that's kind of how they do it, you know? And um, mm. it's, and the, the way that it's shot is just very sincere. She's doing this kind of uh, channeling thing, and I'm talking to my deceased son, and also, it's kind of creepy. Like, uh, I, mm, how did, oh yeah, the other part of it is she has to read this thing in Sanskrit. We don't know what mm-hmm. that's all about, but you got to read that first, then ask it questions and all that. Um, but Annie leaves because she's uncomfortable, naturally. But yet, she is also somewhat um, curious, right? Because then she tries to do her own seance at the house. Yep. And that's another, that's like, <laughs> that scene is nuts. Yeah, it is. That's when it turns into like, okay, so is this a, go- a ghost movie or is this like poltergeist? Holy shit, we got stuff moving everywhere. And suddenly she's channeling her daughter and her daughter is speaking through her. And it's super creepy. And now we've entered the territory of uh, pretty much full-on horror. I think that it's that scene where the movie's, you know, climax kind of starts to, you know, pick up. At that, I think it's at that point when things really start to ramp up towards the conclusion. Yeah, I agree. That that is a breaking point. And, and there's so many there's so many things that happen from this point on that I don't know if we really need to go through all of them, but it's obvious that this has become a possession kind of thing. They have called forth somehow an evil spirit, a demon, just the ghost, we don't know, a, a malevolent entity. And uh, it's now wreaking havoc within the family. It builds to Annie going back to her mother's things and finding out that Joan is not who she says she is, exactly. That Joan, this even before all of this, was intimately good friends with her mother. And in this kind of cult and this kind of community that we don't know we don't know a lot about at this point but the photos seem to indicate was pretty strange oh and one thing that we didn't uh, we didn't go into 
was that it it said very early on in the film that uh, Charlie had a very very deep connection with uh, Annie's mother uh, and uh, that really plays into kind of how everything comes together. Yeah, it's an important detail. The other part of that is uh, she had a connection with Charlie because she wasn't allowed to have a connection with Peter. Annie didn't allow it. Oh, that's correct, yeah. And then she was able to latch on to Charlie, which really, I believe, in my interpretation, is the reason all this plays out the way it does. Yeah. I forget. Why, uh... Was it said the reason why Annie didn't want her mother to have a relationship with Peter? I don't think directly. It's not... There's nothing... always vague. Yeah. There was just something there. And you kind of got to put the pieces together yourself. But, um... (coughs) It adds to the mystique of the grandmother, you know, and it really kind of drives this idea that she was manipulative and sinister, but you have to watch the rest of the movie to really understand the full scope of that. It's such an important part of when she goes through her mother's things and sees these photos of her mother with Joan, and then she also discovers the text, highlighted, I think, about the demon Pyman. Paimon. Yeah. And there's some... Paimon. And there's some important... Some important um, details there as well. Like, uh, I think one one thing that was highlighted was about how Paimon um, needs a male host or desires a male host, which is super important to how this is all playing out here. But the, the main point is this cult that the grandmother was a part of or was possibly the leader of was worshipping this demon, this pagan demon, and quite possibly trying to bring this demon into our world. How that how that has to happen then is the rest of this movie, which, I mean, at this point, you would think, like, right now, this is enough for me for a good horror movie. Right now, it's like, wow, that's cool. That's kind of creative. Yeah, wow, all right. Let's just have everybody dying in the movie. I'm good. <laughs> but, but instead, we get even, even more uh, revelations and, and uh, just sequences of, of immense unsettling images that are part of this whole backstory and the action that is unseen. So, for example, okay, so we know that now it's like a possession story, but who is possessed exactly? Where is this thing? How do you find it? Well, you don't, you don't really know, but you have these sequences that happen that you don't, you don't understand why they happen, but I think they serve to, uh, they, they serve to tell you that these things have to happen for some reason, that they're part of this ritual system that's going on to ensure that the demon uh, the demon is embodied accurately, mm-hmm. correctly 
so that it can survive. So, like, like we have Annie discovers... Oh, well, okay, the big thing is she discovers her mom's body in the attic. And uh, maybe we should talk about the husband a little bit more. Steve. Steve, Steve mm-hmm. is the character... Like, more than the, than the kids or anybody in the movie, I feel the worst for Steve, the dad. He's by far the most sane person in the movie. He is. And he's just, yeah. I feel like he's just trying to do everything rationally. He's trying to think things through, be the, mm-hmm. the father figure. And he really, like, he is the one that has absolutely... No agency in this, it seems like. Or, or I guess I should say, well, he has no, I don't know. he's not rewarded for anything he tries to do. Well, I think that is the point, though, because he is also, he's also rather deflective. He, he doesn't really have a lot of room to listen. You know, he's, he's like, like you said, he's uh, he's at his wits' end. Like he's doing his best. Uh, that he's doing his best the way he knows how. But at the same time, he's kind of fallen short a little bit, you know. And I I think that uh, I think that's kind of what you're talking about, though. You know. The th- the thing with uh, each of the characters in this film. Everybody in the film is deeply flawed in some way. And with Steve, I feel like, um, you know, as you said, he's at his wits end, but he also, I feel like he's not very supportive to his wife. Uh, You know, she clearly, and she has a very difficult time in this movie. You know, she has to deal with, you know, the loss of two very important people in her life. But, you know, you can tell that that she has had a lot of her own struggles. Um, you know, she suffers from sleepwalking. Um, it, they go into, uh, you know, that the relationship uh, between Annie and Peter is for a very long time has been very difficult. Uh, they go into, she was sleepwalking. Uh, she had a sleepwalking episode and, you know, she ended up, uh, what was it? She was, yeah, she, uh, pour, I think poured gasoline. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, um, paint thinner. Oh, paint thinner. Yeah. And, uh, you know, she woke up like when she was striking a match which, you know, that that would be terrifying. And, you know, you can you can see from both her perspective and Peter's perspective, like, you know, oh, I think my mom's trying to kill me. Uh, and I, I have some thoughts on this scene. I, I was going to save them until we completed our synopsis, but maybe I should just mention it now since we're talking about the characters. Um, okay. I feel like uh, that part of her, that's the subconscious part of her, right? That for some reason wants to kill or hurt Peter is because somehow subconsciously she knows what's going to happen. She knows the fate of her family. 
And maybe that's the part of her that is actually the loving part of her that wants to save him from what's about to happen. That's just a theory. But it's kind of sick, I, you know? It's twisted to think that way. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I mean, there, there's definitely some part of her that, you know, she not only, you know, somewhat resents Peter, but, you know, also herself. Many times throughout the movie, you can tell that she questions, uh, you know, if she's fit to be a mother, um, you know, is she doing what's right for her family? And yeah, and I just want to add while I'm thinking of it, there is a 15 minute extra behind the scenes where you just watch the actors act and the director direct. And I just wanted to say that you could just tell that um, just just the the level of both acting and directing was um, so great. That's all. Just I really liked seeing that little snippet of her trying to understand the character and then trying, feeling for the director's opinion. Like, hey, do you think I should do this? And and I know that it's kind of a normal thing, but uh, that just it shows to me how much of a collaborative effort this really was to bringing these characters to life. It's just cool. Hmm. Yeah, and really... It's a relatively small cast, but I mean, really, everybody's great in it. I mean, I would say that the only potentially weak person would maybe be uh, Steve, just because they don't really give him that much to work with. He's kind of just some British guy. (laughs) Totally agree. When I watched it the second time, I had the same thought. You know, I just that's what I mean. Like, I felt bad for the dad because I just felt like he was doing his thing and then he was extinguished. Um but he pl- the actor played the the role fantastically. I specifically really like uh, Alice or Alex Wolf that plays uh, Peter. I I want to say this before I forget. Another thing I learned, uh, Ari Aster was saying that uh, Peter, the guy who played Peter, Alex, he introduced himself as Alex on the last day of shooting because he's a method actor. So the whole shoot. He was in character as Peter. No, I, I, I really like him as an actor. Uh, this was the, the second movie that I ever saw him in. Uh, the first one being uh, My Friend Dahmer, uh, kind of a black comedy. I think it's on Netflix. I have to double check. Better find that one, My Friend Dahmer. He's, he's got some issues, <laughs> but he's my friend. You know, the... I think it was the the guy that played Jeffrey Dahmer. He originally had a job with Disney, but they let him go because he took that role. Oh, yeah, I can see that. (laughs) I can see that. I'm sure that. Yeah, that probably happens a lot, to be honest, where they're like, hey, um, you know, if you're going to play a character that fucking eats people, (laughs) we don't know if you can... uh be with Disney anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Alright, back to our story. It's such an exciting story unfolding before us. The incarnation of the demon Paimon. Paimon? How do you say it? I've heard so many different... I think it's 
It's it's fucking payment. I want to say it incorrectly because if you say it correctly so many times. Also, who cares? You can say whatever you want. What if he just wanted to say his name was uh, Piggy Boy? There you go. That's not very scary, Matt. Piggy Boy? Hey, I don't know. Have you ever seen Saw 3? Yeah. I did. Ever, I've seen uh, Saul three in the theater. Ever, uh, ever read Lord of the Fri- <laughs> Lord of the Fries? Oh yeah, that guy, he got the boulder, that's, right? That's the that's that documentary where they, yeah. they eat the McDonald's for thirty days, right? Yeah, sucks to your <laughs> ass, Mar. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of disturbed me when I was younger. Lord of the Flies. Oh yeah, me too, dude. I kind of did. I felt like. Because we studied that in school, and I felt like the reason yeah. we studied that was, uh, the, the whole point was, yeah, if you didn't have adults, then you kids would all, this is what you would do, you would just kill each other, right? That's why you need adults. Mm-hmm. If you were stranded on an island, you would just descend into chaos. And I'm like, well, maybe, but I don't think I'd throw a boulder on this dude's head. Ready to go. Cool. It's all just a bunch of propaganda made by Catholic school nuns. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Stay woke, that's, people. That's, that when we when we uncover the Illuminati, that's who behind that's who's behind it. Don't say that live. I said it with a D, with a D, not with a T. Thank Illuminati you. light, Whoa. the light version. That's right. Back to the wonderful family drama, Hereditary. Uh, we have mm-hmm. this demon running around somewhere. Oh, gosh. Well, Annie finds the body of her mother in the attic, and that's uh, pretty disturbing. It's decapitated. Um, in blood, we see this symbol that we've seen a couple times in jewelry and stuff. Let's just say some crazy stuff happened in that attic. Uh, the, we, also, just- we also haven't talked about the treehouse. The treehouse is an important element. The treehouse is uh, just right next to the Graham house, and the treehouse is where Charlie hangs out. That's kind of her special place, right? Mm-hmm. Or it was. You know, You know, that's where she uh, cuts the heads off birds with scissors and, you know, girl stuff. But just to be sure, there's, there's not a whole lot of stuff in the treehouse. She has an actual room, and her bedroom is at the top of the house, in the attic. Is that correct? Not the attic, but the, the top floor? Yeah. yeah. I want to get this right, because I actually have a theory about some of the symbolism here that I'll bring up later. But yeah, um, in the actual attic, they find the body of the grandmother, headless, and that's uh, pretty disgusting and disturbing. Um, and then that leads to... The book, the book that is thrown into the fire. It's mm-hmm. uh, the sketchbook that she believes, oh, that's right, Annie throws the book, or she, she tries to burn the book and she catches on fire. So she believes that the book is linked to her, to her body. And she asks Steve, please, please, Steve, just throw it in the fire. It'll kill me, but you have to do it. I, what, what did you guys feel about that scene specifically? Because I felt like, you know, wh- why couldn't she do it? If she was that distraught, why couldn't she just throw the book herself into the fire? Why did he have to do Be- it? Because she would rather he go than she. 
It's it's well. There's a a, a really this. It's the way it had to be. Yeah. You can't self death. You can't do a self death. Okay. <laughs> well, he won't do it. He says, "I'm not. I'm not for this mumbo jumbo stuff. Not after that seance, man. That was weird." So she throws the book in the fire, and uh, Steve erupts into flames and dies. And then this strange light that you see in certain scenes shoots through the room and goes into her. So then we know then that this light that we see is is like the actual spirit of this demon, right? Mm-hmm. It's like an orb. And then later, Peter finds the body of his father and freaks out, of course. And this is uh, leading up to the final climactic uh, scenes here where um, Annie has been possessed and she now, I guess, wants to kill Peter. She has a knife, right? Or is... I thought they were scissors. Here's... Something sharp and scary. Oh, and actually, before before we get to that, there was something about uh, Steve that I forgot to mention. So earlier in the movie, um, Steve gets a call about Annie's mother's uh, grave. From and the apparently, funeral. Yeah, and the grave has been, they say, desecrated. Uh, and uh, Steve chooses not to tell Annie about it. It's later, uh, you know, revealed that potentially it might have been Joan that dug up uh, the body. It, I think I think it was more implied that it was that group of people. Yeah, that made it happen. Maybe that was just my head cannon. Well, Steve was accusing Annie of doing it, and then as yep. as a viewer, that's when you start to think of this more as a psychological film, and then you start to think, oh, is this one of those movies where she's been doing all of these things, but we've been seeing kind of what she's wanted to see. Or something mm-hmm. to that effect, right? Did you have that same kind of reaction to that? Yeah. Yeah, but then, yeah. But then we have another revelation, and, and we discover that's not really the case. It's, it's entirely different. Um, I mean, I guess maybe it could have been her, but there's really nothing in the movie indicating that it was. And if they did, then that would imply that she's doing all kinds of shit that uh, we never see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm just saying, I tend to think that it wasn't Annie. I think this is like what you said, Matt. It's this group of cult members had to dig the body up and place it up there as part of this ritual that we see at the end of the movie. Yeah, you know, in the script, it said that Annie was using piano wire. It wasn't obvious to me in the movie, but in the synopsis I'm reading, it still says it was piano wire. At least it's it's, it's what she used to behead herself. That's just a, Mm. man, that's a messed up scene that actually was the scene where annie was floating and stabbing herself uh i distinctly remember a couple leaving the theater oh yeah point yeah (laughs) that was that was that was the breaking point for them uh you know anybody listening who's seen this movie i hope you have 
and you've made it you made it to this part I, I hope you can remember your reaction to it because it was definitely for me one of the most unsettling parts was uh, watching her there uh, hanging in the air suspended and just cutting into herself with that expression on her face oh then that that uh, that light enters Peter's body and we see all we see naked people <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bunch of old naked people. And it, it was at that point, because there's a couple, uh, a, a couple, I'm almost afraid to call them jump scares, but there, Ari Aster did some really creative camera work to subvert the viewer's attention. So you're looking at another part of the screen or you almost like think in your mind like oh this thing is over here but then you know it's actually over here and i thought that that was a very effective way to do a jump scare there were two that specifically stuck out to me uh there was one where you actually see peter walk into the you know the living room area and you see Annie stuck up on the up by the ceiling. Oh yeah. And then and then they cut away and when they go back, uh you see that she's actually like in the corner of the room and starts to run it, Peter. I thought that was really cool. And I think they did uh, a similar thing with one of the cult members that you see. Mm-hmm. And early couple, on, couple times, early on yeah. too, with the grandmother, when she thinks she sees her mom in that room, yeah, mm-hmm. that messed with me, man. That's when oh. I was like, "This movie's, this movie's gonna mess with my head." I know it. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. um, but definitely the scene you're mentioning, yeah, for sure, because you're just like, "Is is that what I did? Did I see that? What, was she up there? Huh." I'm not sure, but I'm kind of I'm kind of scared to find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd I, I'd really say that you know out of all the horror movies I've seen, I I really felt that this was one of the most effective in terms of just you know visual horror and psychological horror. Me too. I really think that this movie is going to be one that that lasts as intended. Uh, by the creators. They put so much effort into the cinematography, into each and every scene. And one eye-opening thing for me was to go go back and read through the screenplay from the beginning to the end and then watch the movie followed by the deleted scenes. And you see that those deleted scenes, they're, I think all of them are in the script. And they serve the script very well. But they were so tasteful in removing them from the movie. Because of when you make a movie, you know, it's 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 a collaborative thing. It's something that it takes the script and then completely I shouldn't say completely, but it adds to it, it builds to it, it creates something new. And uh, they I can see they just it just didn't fit. You know, it took something away from that narrative, even though within the screenplay itself, these scenes were pretty important. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of them are kind of boring. They kind of... There were no, none of the um, full-on horror scenes were taken out, or at least they weren't in the deleted scenes that you could watch in the extras. So there was a um, funeral scene that was taken out from Charlie's funeral, which actually told a lot about how Annie dealt with that grief right in that moment. Did any of those scenes uh, from Charlie's funeral, did they go into the legality of Charlie's death? That was one thing that I thought was kind of strange was like... Right. He didn't mean to, but he killed his sister. And, uh, you know, are there any l legal repercussions to that? Yeah, I think it was intentionally left out. That part of it. Um, you're just supposed to infer that uh, it was accidental, really, in the end. Were they better than the deleted scenes in Colorado Space? Hell no. There ain't no cage can't. There ain't no cage handstands in there. Charlie, he's knocked out of the house, or does he jump? Yeah, he jumps because uh, he sees one of the cult members is in the attic with him. Yeah, because, uh, you know, uh, Annie is basically chasing him through the house trying to kill him, and he locks himself in the attic and sees, you know, dead body and uh, a bunch of cult stuff and, and then sees a bunch of old naked people and is just like, Ugh. <laughs> Yeet. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, gosh, we, you know, we skipped over some other scenes of his, uh, leading up to his transformation, you know, where he bashes his nose into his desk at school and he contorts his body. It's like there's oh, this foreign entity inside of him trying to take over and he's rejecting it. You know, it's not, I really like that aspect. In a lot of horror movies, when there's a possession taking place, it's just that. It's just like night and day. The spirit has taken over, and that's now, that's that's the host, and that's the body. But in this one, it's not like that. It's like, it's a slow kind of takeover, a very sick and hostile takeover, and done so well with the, the psychological part of it, like when he sees his reflection in the glass, and his reflection is smiling back at him, but he's not actually smiling. And that kind of stuff just really stays with yeah. you. And you see that same, uh, that light, the orb, go into Peter. Right. Yeah, it's like, oh, before the spirit could enter Peter, something had to be done to get Peter out of his body. And remember, Joan comes to his school and starts yelling at him and screaming, you know, like demons names and stuff I don't even know what she's saying but get out get out oh my god freaked me out and then after he's fallen from the window that's the penultimate scene that's when uh, he stands up and there's something a little bit different about Peter we see Annie's decapitated body levitate up into the treehouse that also messed with me how oh, that was that Yep. Ugh. You know, it wasn't. It just, it just looks. It it just looks so 
unnatural. <laughs> There's just something just very unsettling about the way that that was animated. And I'm sure that that was on purpose. Yeah, and totally on point. I love that it wasn't a close-up. It was like a... It was a shot of the whole treehouse, but then you see this thing moving up. And then uh, Peter then enters the treehouse, and we meet all of the nude, nudist cult members kneeling, and they have this effigy set up with uh, Charlie's decapitated head, and he's given the crown, and Joan reveals to him that he's actually Paimon. Or how do we know that he is he's the spirit of Charlie now embodied with Paimon? So you see the orb after um, after Peter jumps out the window. You see the orb go into him, and then he stands up, and uh, you know you kind of see an expressionless face uh oh how and 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 he the click that's how you know yeah gosh that is such good writing yeah because charlie does that throughout the beginning of the movie that's that's why her mother uh didn't want her hanging out with grandma Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, because she fucking possessed her with a demon yeah, that's, that's a pretty good reason. And she knew it. She knew her mom. She knew the weird stuff she was into. She talked about it at the at her mom's funeral, you know? She kind of... Yeah, and, and and it's it's basically revealed that Charlie was Paimon, but Paimon, in order to have his full powers, uh, needs to be in a male host. Well, I think the most interesting thing about this movie is that the ritual is so complex. It wasn't necessarily that they needed a male host. It was they needed grandma. They needed mom. And they needed Charlie. And they needed Peter. And they also needed, like, just a regular guy. And it took decades for this ritual to happen. And it had to happen in a certain order. So it's kind of like it's one of those movies that um, it tricks you with all of these like false twists and everything. But really, it was just right behind you the whole time. There's there. It's right in front of you the whole time. It's just a ritual that has taken decades to finally awaken this demon, you know, and it took a whole generation of people. Which, you know, like, where do you think the name comes from? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and it's like every every part of the movie, you wonder is, you know, were they pulling the strings for every single part of it? Did any of the characters have any agency? Yeah. How else would, uh, how else would have that woman run into her at the support group, you know? It was, a, it was obviously not a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Knew where her son went to school. Told her the words to say to get her possessed. Jesus Christ. 
It's uh, it's in Sanskrit. Just you know, just just say it, and you can talk to your dead daughter. It's a language of angels. Oh, I minored in Sanskrit at the community college. Oh, now you're now you're reminding me of Midsummer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I studied uh, I studied alternative religions, and uh, I need to go to Sweden to uh, study them even more. That is a preview for our next Cageless episode. We're going to be looking at Midsummer. And, you know, doing, we'll do some comparisons and see how these two movies fit together, what the evolution is from Hereditary to Midsummer. But yeah, this movie, it ends at this scene. It's, it's, like, it's almost like the coronation of the king. And Joan um, speaks to Paimon and, and tells him who he is. You are Paimon and you will reveal to us the secrets of the universe. And the other thing she says, which is, creepy is that uh, we reject the trinity and th- just everything she says has so many implications and and it's something that i love about these kinds of movies you know when you think about what that means it just it's amazing it means you can actually <laughs> through a series of rituals you can call demons into this world and what what is the world gonna be like now what's gonna happen with this uh, this spiritual community with these cultists. What happens next? But you never find out. You don't, because that's I, you know that's really not what the movie's about. But it's fun to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, why didn't you add another hour to it? Yeah, jeez, dude, like do a sequel, Her- Hereditary Two. Yeah, that's that's what happens. We got our new king and lord, Lord Paimon. Uh, let's a little bit about the script versus the movie. Like I said before, I thought that the piano wire was only in the script, but I got to go back and see because I couldn't really tell what uh, Annie was uh, decapitating herself with. You know, like, I got, I really need to know. I thought it was like two knives. Yeah, that's what I thought. Or like, I swear it was a pair of scissors or something. I, it was something but else. She was. The other noticeable change is in the script, the cultists wear red cloaks. Hmm. They changed it in the movie for them to be naked. Um, very interesting change, and I think it was a smart move. Because, you know... Yeah, it it way creepier. Yeah, I mean, a naked person doesn't automatically make you think cultist, but I think if we saw people in red cloaks, it would just be so clear. There's a lot of penis in this movie. Yeah, there's some wangers, for sure. Mm. Dude hangs dong. Yeah, really all I want to say about the script is I was so impressed by how much of the camera work and the action was actually in the script. And I'll give a couple examples. Again, you can find it online to read yourself. Um, For example, the party scene where you see the nuts being chopped, the nuts that are going to be put in the cake, mm-hmm. right? Um, there's an extreme close-up on that. And, you you know, when you watch it, you just think, well, that's action, so they're going to film it. That's, you're going to see them chopping the, the nuts, okay. But when you start to think about it, like an intentionally extreme close-up, like subconsciously cues you in that this has some significance. I just didn't think about that when I was watching the movie, you know? But the shots are in there. 
Um, I like... He, he writes about... The wake. Everything, he says, quote, in the script, quote, everything seems slightly opaque, as if seen through glass, glossed over by grief. People stand uneasily and talk in hushed tones. He uses a lot of, of imagery to set up these scenes in the script, and you just, you don't, you don't often see this level of detail in scripts. And in fact, I believe in, in screenwriting classes and stuff, they'll tell you not to include this stuff many times because you want to give your directors and actors latitude and some freedom to express themselves but uh you know not not here Ari Aster knew exactly what he was going for and he he got it um pretty much on point uh something else and there are small things too that you just don't know unless you read the script like Joan I noticed she's she's smudging with sweet grass and that's something that people uh, in the metaphysical community, they'll do. They'll smudge with, with uh, sweet grass and sage, and it represents something. Um, there's a, in the screenplay, at the treehouse, at the very end, when Peter Paimon is ascending, there is a whippoorwill in a cage. The bird. Mm. And the whippoorwill represents, I didn't know this, I had to look it up, it represents... Um, a spirit that has just left. It's a symbol oh. for the the just fleeted spirit. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, it's just so crazy because when you watch a movie, you don't know that that's a whippoorwill, right? How many people know they're birds and stuff? So I don't even know if that was in the movie. But that's just, uh, you know, a couple examples of uh, the symbolism. The, the, the level of detail in that. Uh, something else that I yeah. wanted to talk about was um, I believe that Charlie's bedroom was at the top of the house. Was it in the attic? I don't think so. In the attic. Let me actually fact check this real quick before I go through with this. No, it wasn't in the attic because there was like some major freak out scenes in the attic. You remember that? Where she finds her mom all dead up there and stinky. And it wasn't a bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All dead and stinky. <laughs> but I, I remembered, like, I just swear I saw the vaulted ceiling. And it, it, uh... Yeah, this may not hold up, but I thought that if it was, you know, the top of the triangle. If, you know, you watch Ari Aster's movies, he loves the triangle and what it represents in the pagan community. And that, uh, you know, the, the top point of the triangle is like the god, the, um, the ultimate, the all, and everything is, is being expressed from there outward. And so I thought that's why Charlie was at the top of the house, because she was essentially the god and also in that early scene when her mom's talking to her in bed, she's wearing like a, a sheepskin coat, something like that. Which is, to me, that told me that she's, she's the sacrifice. She's the lamb that's about to go mm-hmm. into the slaughter, basically. So I don't know if it was intentional, but I just, what's so cool about this movie is you, you can go back and watch it and find something new to, uh, to think about. Yeah, this is this is definitely a movie that lends itself to multiple viewings. Uh, 
you know, I, I would say that, you know, it, you're probably not going to get everything the first time. I mean, it re- really, it's, it's hard to pick up on certain plot beats. Uh, at least it was for me, uh, seeing it the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. What other movies would you compare to Hereditary, or do you think maybe inspired Hereditary? I just before you answer, uh, Ari Oster did say he did mention Carrie, and he mentioned this other movie that I've never heard of, but I totally want to see. It's called The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. It has uh, mm-hmm. Helen Mirren in it, and it looks it looks interesting. It's not a horror movie. But he talked about it uh, as having unsettling images in it that stuck with him. So I definitely want to check that out. But what what else have you guys seen that um, you think are related to Hereditary? Okay, I'll tell you I'll tell you one movie that gave me a similar reaction, but I don't think it was as good of a of a film as Hereditary. Um, and Matt will remember this one. I don't know if we watched it together or what, but I know you've seen it. Martyrs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The French movie? Yeah. Yeah, we watched that together. Have you seen that one, Sean? I have not. Oh, you should. If you like horror movies, if you have a strong stomach, give Martyrs <laughs> a shot because that's another one that uh, very, very quickly subverts your expectations. Um,. Yeah, in fact, if since you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it, but there's some themes in there that are similar. There's like um, dealing with grief, um, your own grief, your own your own mental defects. Um, what's another theme? Oh, okay. Let me let me just say salvation or universal knowledge through suffering. That's kind of one of the primary themes of Martyrs. Um, but yeah, that being said, Martyrs affected me in a much different way. Th- that one is, uh, I'd say, much more gruesome. Um, and there's also that kind of cultural disconnect, maybe, because it's a foreign film. You know, Hereditary just felt more, um, it more, it felt more at home with me because it felt like a family that I could relate to. Until, until I couldn't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> one, uh, one film, and this might be a stretch, but one film that comes to mind is uh, the original Hellraiser. Just with the themes of, you know, family members, the things that they have done when they were alive, kind of coming back to haunt you after they've passed. You know, because that movie, it's a, it primarily takes place with a family, uh, and it's revealed that you know the the wife had an affair with uh, her husband's brother, and you know she finds she finds uh, they move to a new house, and uh, it's revealed that you know her husband's brother. Uh, is actually still alive, but he's, you know, he opened the uh, puzzle box uh, that, you know, opens a opens a portal to hell, and you know, she basically needs to kill people uh, 
in order to resurrect him. And, uh, you know, it really, like, the sins that she committed uh, before any of this happened, it's almost like he comes to her because of, you know, their previous relationship. And you know. Yeah, I gotta watch that one again. I had it on VHS for a while. Yeah, Hell- Hellraiser's probably one of my favorite horror franchises. I've, I've actually seen all nine of them. <laughs> would you say I've only seen the first one would you say any of the others uh, match that match that one or, or even exceed it uh, so I would say that the first four are pretty solid uh, five I think is a is good but it has very little to do with the Cenobites six is six is trash Seven, I thought, actually was awesome. And then eight and nine are just, like, utter garbage. Yeah, you know, that actually kind of reminds me of uh, my opinions of the Universal Soldier movies. Are you familiar with that franchise? (laughs) No. With Jean-Claude Van Damme? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, Matt? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, like, the first one was pretty classic for the 80s. I think it was an 80s movie. And then, you know, second one was, was okay, pretty solid. And then you had some that were just uh, pretty trash. But then all of a sudden they had this one called uh, Universal Soldier Regeneration. I thought it was pretty damn cool. Had Dolph Lundgren in it. <laughs> another, uh, like, UFC fighter. And the fights were more, um, I guess, realistic. It was more grappling. And it was shot in Chernobyl. And there was some cheese to it, of course. I mean, these movies <laughs> always have it. But I could forgive it. And uh, nobody liked it. Nobody liked it. And then there was one released right after that one. It was another Universal Soldier movie. I don't even remember what it was called. But people preferred, I think, this later one. And I thought it was complete trash. <sighs> it's just crazy, man. Good good movie to check out. Uh, Children of the Corn 3, Urban Harvest. Is that real? Yes. <laughs> and it's amazing <laughs> yeah I think you're gonna be my go to um, yeah horror guy for those kinds of movies <laughs> because I just yeah I, I I like horror but I can't stomach watching a lot of really bad horror for some reason yeah because I feel like I'm exposing myself to this darkness for nothing <laughs> <laughs> See, like that—that's why I like a lot of older horror movies. Cause, like, I feel like the genre just there's something about it that it's like you're not even watching the movie for it to be good. You're just like, yeah, we're just gonna do some cool shit. Yeah, and if the cool shit is really cool, that works. Yeah, and uh, you know. Uh, I think other than, you know, Hereditary, one of the directors that I have really been impressed with pretty consistently was uh, actually Rob Zombie. Okay. Well, yeah, I did mention, you know, how I said the rock star director. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I liked Rob Zombie's House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, gosh, what was his big one? 
After that, the sequel. Devil's Devil's Rejects. Devil's Rejects, yeah. Huge fan of that movie. Yeah. And they actually made a, a third one uh, recently. You did tell me that. Did you watch it? Yeah. I did. Uh, yeah, I've, I, I've seen all of his movies except for the two Halloween movies. Those I haven't seen yet. But yeah, it, it was it was worth a watch. There was also another movie he did called uh, 31, I think it was. Um, and that movie was essentially just like Rob Zombie boss rush mode. <laughs> okay. I didn't see that one either. I, I went to the theater to watch Sinister. Did you see that one? No, I haven't seen that one. I was a bit disappointed, but, you, you know, I mean, you might like it. I don't like horror movies where the characters lose all sense of common sense. So that was a movie where the dude's stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out what's making that sound. But the house has electricity. Right. Why don't you just turn the damn lights on? I mean, just check it out. These minor details. That kind of reminds me of uh, Saw 2. That movie always pissed me off because they literally can get out of the situation, but then, like, the big dumb jock guy just is like, I'm gonna go crazy and kill everybody for no reason. I don't remember that. Uh, I don't remember that at all. I just remember... Oh, I don't even know. What was what was the ending of Saw 2? I liked it when it came out. I just remember that dude just deciding to kill everybody. It had a kind of twist ending like the first one, because the first one, you find out that the whoever they're looking for is in the, the same location the whole time, right? Yeah. That's a franchise that I need to revisit. I've only seen the first three me too watch the watch all of them and then come back to us give us a full report on the, the Saw <laughs> series let's talk about uh, back to Hereditary real quick to, to finish this discussion up um, the music was done by Colin Stetson who is like a famous saxophone player I guess uh, Ari Aster was listening to a lot of Colin Stetson so he says in, in the special features and asked him if he would be a part of this project and uh yeah this was i think colin stetson's first uh horror movie soundtrack which uh i mean right from the get-go when you hear that low drone and they show the obituary i i'm already creeped out i'm already in the zone like here we go i'm ready for this ride so shout out to colin stetson did a great job uh powell pogerzelski or pogerzelski was the director of photography. He met Ari at AFI. Uh, they became good friends and collaborators. Gotta give a shout out to him. Great work. And then the production designer, Grace Yoon is her name. I believe she also met them at AFI. If I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Um, but she gives some input as well in the special features as to her process in creating the sets and... She did her own research as well on pagan cults. And uh, just because of her, this movie also just looked excellent. Um, a guy named Steve Newburn was responsible for the miniatures. He's an artist out of Toronto. So they hired him to create 
all of the miniatures that you see in the movie, and even miniatures that are in uh, like old photos and stuff. So you don't see them directly in the movie, but you see them as photos of Annie that she's holding. So, th- th- but they were commissioned as full-scale miniatures. So very impressive. Um, yeah. Oh, also, I want to say one of the deleted scenes was a phone call from the, uh, I don't know, the art show people, the people that Annie is making her miniatures for, right? Well, she gets this phone call from, uh, from one of them who's telling her, you know, they're asking about her progress, basically. Mm-hmm. And in, in the deleted scene, I can tell it's, it's Ari Aster's voice. So they pulled an M. Night Shyamalan or a Stephen King, put him in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I thought that was funny. It's funny that they cut it out, too. I thought maybe he didn't like his voice or something, so they (laughs) cut it out. All right, and then finally, I just want to say something about the commentary, because this was the last thing I decided to do. I wanted to go back, watch the movie with the commentary. Uh, I, I bought the movie through iTunes, so that was one of the extras. And, you know, I'm not going to talk too badly about the commentary. I'm just going to say it's a little disappointing expecting commentary as you would from other other big films. Like, I'm used to, for example, the last... Not the last samurai. Seven samurai. <laughs> seven samurai commentary, right? You get a professional historian, who's giving you a scene-by-scene play of what's going on and what that means and the context of the time period. Or, I don't, just, you know what I mean? Like, you'll have the director and an actor talking and giving you more insight into it. Well, apparently, for Hereditary, um, I'm sorry I'm laughing. It's just amusing to me. Ari asked his brother, Noah Astor, to do the commentary. And it's kind of like just, it's kind of like just some dude you know talking about what's happening in the movie. <laughs> so it's us. It's just like us, yeah. It's just like us watching the movie and talking about how, yeah. I mean, you don't know what this part is yet because that comes later. But if you keep watching it, you know, you'll find out what that's all about. And, and uh, I mean, t- what's that? Are you t- are you telling me that a twenty four could not spare a couple pigs <laughs> to actually get Pyman in the commentary <laughs> track? Right? Come on. Yeah, Come for on. Real. What for what real. what is he doing? He's the king of hell. Like Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Bro. I yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it gets maybe it gets more informative as it goes. Um I don't know. You know, I think maybe it's also Ari kind of saying, like, really I don't need to give any more commentary to the movie. Watch it, get what you can from it, and just I'll just let my brother do the commentary. I don't know, but I mean, it's not awful. My biggest complaint about it isn't really the commentary. It's the fact that they remove the rest of the audio. So all you can hear is this guy's voice. And so he's oh. he's reacting to things that you can't hear. And that just really, I, I couldn't do it. But, you know, if if you want, give it a try. Maybe it, it's not awful, but I, it just didn't keep my attention. I wonder if we can uh, crowdfund some some cage commentary for it. Dude, I know. I think we should. 
I think it would be really interesting if all of us got together and made our own commentary track for Hereditary. So if you do listen to this and um, you'd be interested in hearing a uh, late night cage fight commentary track, let us know. If we get enough interest, we'll totally do it. I'll green light it. We'll green light the script right now. Right, Matt? That's right. But yeah, uh, I, I think that Hereditary is... Um, it's going to be a movie that's remembered. It's going to last. It's going to have a legacy. People are going to be talking about it for a very long time. And the same with Midsummer as well. I, I even appreciate that Midsummer uh, continues with some of these elements, but it also takes a completely new direction, which we will talk about in our next Cageless episode. Yeah, focused on Ari Aster's Midsummer. So if you like this episode, stay tuned for that one and do check it out because it will build on this one as well. Um, is there anything else you guys want to add about Hereditary? I think, I think there's one really important question that we have to ask. How could Nicolas Cage make this movie better? That's, that is the question. I thought he should play Steve. Could you imagine? Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, it would have been, been a different movie. Yeah. <laughs> there probably would have been a lot more groping or, you know, forced forced uh, romantic encounters with Tony Collette. Yeah. Yeah, that's all right. Or, or I mean, maybe even the mom before, you know, she died. Well, how about the scene where he becomes Ghost Rider? <laughs> and he has to fight Pyman and <laughs> Maybe that's the sequel. Yeah. Hereditary 2. <laughs> the Rise of Ghost Rider. <laughs> we should make we should make our own version, Hereditary, but it's about some guy named Terry. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and he's just sick of his family's bullshit. All right. Well, we've uh, totally gone through Hereditary. For those of you tuning into the stream, if you're here, this is, uh, if you can see this, the Steel Book that I got a couple years ago, the movie, only for the UK, but I just had to have the Steel Book, so I thought it would be kind of kind of neat. On the back, it has the house or windows from the house in an interesting pattern. And then this design on the front of the tree. That is, I think, representative, emblematic of the cult. Yeah, great movie. Every family tree hides a secret. So, yeah, thanks, guys, for joining me. I had fun. Yeah. Oh, and before we go, uh, we have to play um, Six Degrees of uh, Cage. It's worth noting that Alex Wolf actually will be starring in Truffle Hunters alongside... Nick himself. Is that the name of the film? I believe so. I don't know anything about this. I feel like I'm listening to Late Night Cage Fight for the first time and learning something amazing. Oh, you know what? It's just called Pig. Pig? It's just Pig. Oh, Pig. All right. It says it's in, it says it's in uh, post-production. Yeah, it's supposed to come out this year. It probably got delayed because of COVID. Yeah. 
Well, that's great. We'll get to see Cage and Peter together. Together at last. With some pigs. I hope there's some decapitation as well. It always adds to things. All right, guys. Well, that's all I got for Hereditary. Yeah. Thanks for checking us out. Thanks for tuning in. This is our uh, first episode of the Cageless series. Check us out again at nickcagefight.com. We're on Facebook. We're going to keep watching Nick Cage movies. Don't you worry. We may even have a new episode out by the end of next week. And it's going to be good. All right. I'm out. Thanks, guys. <laughs>